0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Peace, recorded May 22nd, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning I'd like to uh, talk about peace, which is something that occupies a lot of people's thoughts in these days, and contrast peace from a spiritual point of view with peace from a materialist point of view, or how peace is often thought about in our materialist culture. And one of the things that uh, in a materialist culture we do is we equate peace with a state of physical affairs, so to speak. We think of peace as something to do with the material world or our surroundings, some sort of state that they would be in. So for instance, when we talk about world peace in a broad scale, we really just equate it with the absence of physical warfare. So if there's no physical warfare going on, that's peace. Social peace, we equate with the absence of crime and riots and things like that. Domestic peace, we think of it as just ending domestic conflicts, family conflicts, and particularly violence and abuse in families, are just somehow putting an end to that. We see it in a, in a negative light. Just Ending some state of affairs that we don't like, and then finally another term that's used today is peace of mind. I notice this uh, usually in commercials aimed at older people, senior citizens, and they have various products or or uh, financial plans or something to bring you peace of mind. And we think of that in terms of uh, IRA funds or you know healthcare, uh, social security, all these sorts of things. Uh, they're going to bring us peace of mind, so we don't worry. And of course, the reason materialism equates peace with some sort of outward physical state of affairs is because in materialism, that's the only reality there really is. There's no other dimension to reality, so peace can't have any other meaning except some sort of outward physical state of affairs. So we don't even think in any other terms. And likewise, we don't think that Happiness has any other meaning than arranging outward physical things. All happiness, really even what we think of as psychological happiness in materialist culture, reduces to some sort of physical state of affairs. So then our approach to the problem of peace, if we like to put it that way, is a purely physical approach. Uh, World peace, for instance, may be solved by Raising the standard of living of all these countries. The analysis behind that is the reason there's war is because there're haves and have-nots, and these people who don't have anything uh, go to war to get these goodies. So if we just raise the standard of living and sort of had parity between all the nations, then we could have world peace. Social peace is either to be attained by locking all the criminals up and just get them off the street, and then we'll have peace, or by creating jobs and uh, providing an opportunity for advancement. And again, it all has to do with uh, physical conditions. The idea is that if everybody had a good job and had an opportunity to advance and had meaningful work, nobody would go out and knock anybody on the head and steal their wallet. Domestic peace. We love counseling in families about things like money and sex and sharing chores and the things that we think disturb the domestic peace and so that if we could only work these things out that if everybody in the family had enough and nobody was bopping each other on the head that would be kind of peace. And then peace of mind is that we think of it in terms of having uh, more health care, more social security so that older people don't have to worry and then that'll take care of those agitations, that'll give you peace of mind. Now all this is related to an overall blanket doctrine that's been around since the advent of materialism for about 200 years, and that is the doctrine of progress. And this was uh, a kind of a watershed. During the Age of Enlightenment, and I'm not talking about spiritual enlightenment, but the age of the European Enlightenment, as it's called, when religion was overthrown and uh, reason was enthroned as our great guiding light, the idea was that humanity was going to, by following the light of reason and by uh, using science as a tool, was going to make progress and create this utopia on Earth where everybody would have enough material goods and then there would be no more war, no more problems, and no more anything. Now, there are several things wrong with this doctrine. One, it hasn't quite worked out that way. In fact, we have had more horrendous wars in this century than we've ever known before. We have also uh, managed to pollute and poison our environment to the point where not only our own species is threatened, but all the other species been threatened. We've also noticed a subtle thing happens when we take this approach to nature. Every time we seem to solve a problem, we create another more horrendous problem. We start to uh, conquer diseases, it looks like we're making progress, but then germs start to develop that are resistant to the penicillin and the miracle drugs that we've developed. Uh, we've unleashed tremendous energy that powers our civilization, uh, but this release of this energy, if it's from coal and so forth, is poisoning our skies and water. When it's from atomic energy, we don't know what to do with a byproduct. We have these huge stockpiles of this highly toxic, deadly material that's going to be around for 50,000 years. And so every time we seem to solve a problem, we seem to be confronted with an even more horrendous problem. And one of the reasons that this doctrine of progress has not worked out is because it's unrealistic. It's unrealistic because it ignores a fundamental law of physical existence itself. And that is the law of change. Everything in our experience and everything in science's experience tells us that physical states, states of affairs, are constantly changing. Everything from the weathers to the stars to the mountains, everything is constantly changing. And therefore, if we look to solve the problem of peace by arranging a physical state of affairs that's going to last... We're deluding ourselves. If, for instance, putting aside all the problems of pollution and so forth, if we could raise the standard of living of the whole of Africa and South America and Asia to that of America, which in the process would (laughs) completely destroy the planet with pollution, but let's say even if we could do that, and there was real parity among nations, just even for an instant, in the very next instant there would be no more parity. In the very next instance, some nation would have a little advantage, would have a little bit more, and so forth. And so this idea that we can ever arrive at this sort of utopian state on Earth where everything is just evenly distributed is completely fictitious. It's a utopian dream. Uh, in terms of domestic peace, even if we were able to create jobs for everybody, there would still be a disparity between people who had the better jobs and the worst jobs. Even if everybody's job was absolutely equal, even if for one moment everybody had absolutely equal pay and absolutely equal kind of job, in the next moment somebody would have more. I'd come along and I would uh, barter with uh, Todd over here and I would cheat him. I'd trade him uh, what I told him was an old antique cup for his nice new shiny cup and then he'd find out that my old antique cup wasn't so old and antique and then he would feel cheated. In terms of uh, family, if for one minute you achieve perfect harmony and peace in the family and everybody is satisfied for, let's say, just one day, you know, you get through one day without a conflict, the next day there's going to be a conflict. Somebody is not going to have cleaned the bathroom right, and then the other person's going to come scold them for not cleaning the bathroom right, and there's going to be a little conflict. And finally, peace of mind derived from IRAs and health uh, care and so forth. And by the way, I'm all for these things. But they ultimately are not going to give you peace of mind, because I don't care what sort of health plan that you come up with, you're still going to get sick and die. The government cannot give you a health care plan that will keep you healthy and alive forever. It's unrealistic to expect that from the government. So these are not, in any sense, ultimate solutions to the problem of peace. Now, we can ameliorate situations through these measures, and, and we should certainly uh, be concerned about that. But if we think of them as being ultimate solutions to the problem of peace, it doesn't have to do with anything right or wrong, good or evil, or moral or immoral. It just is unrealistic. There is no lasting peace found in any physical state of affairs. So then the question is, is peace possible? And all spiritual traditions have said yes it is. All religious traditions. This morning, I hadn't planned this, but Todd gave me this present. It's a brochure from the Seventh-day Adventists, two of them who are giving a seminar on the prophecies of the coming revelation and here's a picture i don't know if any of you if you can see it there this is people on earth looking up to heaven and the clouds are parting and the angels are coming down and the idea here is that this whole world of time is about to come to an end and we will all be taken up to heaven and of course it's very peaceful up there these angels sink to God for eternity. Nobody bops anybody on the head, I presume. They don't stay there. They go someplace else. Actually, what this is symbolically, it's, an, it's a vision of the end of samsara, isn't it? Suddenly, this other reality is going to break through and samsara is going to vanish away, but it's interpreted in physical terms here. And then they tell you in the back what this seminar will do for you. And then there's things you'll learn about how to read the revelations and how to prepare yourself for the coming end of the world. And then there's some help for special groups. And it says, for the troubled and discouraged brings peace and happiness. Interesting. Everywhere we look, there's a promise of this. Now, what then is the mystic's answer to this question? The Upanishads say, Brahman is the eternal among things that pass away, pure consciousness of conscious beings, the one who fulfills the prayers of many. Only the wise who see him in their souls attain the peace eternal. There's the idea here, a promise, a witnessing, that some sort of eternal peace is possible. In fact, we might say, the Peace in uh, all mystical traditions is often used almost synonymous with the end of the path, what it's all about. The Christian mystics often quote Paul in, in talking about what they're striving for. And Paul said, the peace of God which passeth all understanding, the peace that passes all understanding. I love that term. Again, it has to do with some sort of peace, but not necessarily a physical state of affairs. The Lakamvatara Sutra describes enlightenment this way in the Buddhist tradition. The Bodhisattva's nirvana is perfect tranquilization, another synonym for peace, but it is not extinction nor inertness. That's important here because sometimes when we think of perfect peace or perfect tranquilization, uh, we think, well, nothing's going to happen, especially when, uh, when you look at the Buddhist tradition as sort of this Uh, almost like this heaven, but you don't even sing to God. You just sort of sit there in this glowing light. But it's not that. There is freedom and spontaneity of potentiality that comes with the attainment of the truths of egolessness and imagelessness. Here is perfect solitude, but radiant with the potency and freedom of its self-nature, which is the self-nature of noble wisdom. Blissfully peaceful, with the serenity of perfect love. So this particular passage is careful to disabuse you if you think that this sort of piece is the kind of peace displayed in this brochure. This sort of piece also has this freedom and spontaneity and potency in it. Nirbukhash, who is a Sufi, writes about this word in Sufism, tama Nina. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right. It's an Arabic word, but something like that. And he says it donates peace, rest, calm, and the stillness of the heart. In Sufi terminology, it means the calm and rest which accompany the intimacy which settles permanently in the heart of the wayfarer on the path. There's something about this peace which is indestructible, which is permanent, which is not dependent on any particular state of physical affairs. Now, we notice here that there's a huge difference between the peace that the mystics are talking about and the peace that the materialists talk about. We might describe that as a difference between an inner peace and an outer peace. Mystics don't look to peace as being dependent on arriving at some perfect state of physical affairs. In fact, Anandamoyama explains very clearly why. In wealth and property there is certainly no peace. What then does give peace? My own true nature is peace, and less and until this is realized, how can there be peace? There really is no peace from wealth and property. Otherwise, those people who had wealth and property would be at peace. But we find that isn't true. There was a recent trial in, uh, in Los Angeles, the Mendoza brothers. There's a whole horror story of abuse and, and finally murder among a very wealthy family. It just is not true. But even more interestingly, peace in the mystical traditions is a positive value. It's something to be valued in itself. And this is very interesting when you contrast it to peace as it's envisioned in materialist culture. In materialist culture, we want peace in order to do other things. Businessmen want world peace so trade can flourish and they can make lots of profits. Some of us want world peace, aside from the negative reasons that our sons and uh and daughters and uh, ourselves, perhaps, although some of us are beyond the, the calling, uh, don't have to go overseas and get killed. But we also think of, if we had world peace, then we'll travel a lot and we'll get to meet people of different cultures. And the Bolshoi Ballet will come here and we'll get to go to the Bolshoi Ballet and all that. It's like peace is sort of a precondition to do other things that will make us happy. Social peace we think of. We don't want uh, crime, we don't want riots, because why? We want to be able to go walk in the park, and we want to be able to go out and uh, go to the theater at night and go downtown and not get bopped on the head. So peace is sort of a precondition so we can go out and do other sorts of things. So those will make us happy. Domestic peace, in this day and age, we really don't know what a family happiness might be, but I guess at least we have this sort of general idea that if we stop bopping each other on the head in the family situation or being abusive or yelling at each other and screaming at each other, that then each member of the family will be able to develop their own potential or something like that, something very kind of amorphous but the the, the state of peace itself is not doesn't have a, a real uh, positive value it's just it's just something that so we can get on with our lives, so to speak, and then even peace of mind. Uh, when you think of it in terms of the poor old senior citizens in their golden years, is so that they can go on cruises and play golf and all that and not have to worry about money. But so they can go out and enjoy their golden years. We don't think of peace as something in its own right to be enjoyed. And the proof of this is, for instance, right now, we have peace, physical peace. We have one of those states of affairs right here in this little area that is peace. How many of you ever stop during the course of the day and just enjoy the peace that you have? I want to read you something from a book called The Forgotten Soldier. It's by uh, Guy Sager. This book never got on the bestseller list. Uh, It's not a very popular book. It's written, first of all, by a German soldier from the Second World War. And he was on the Eastern Front which is some of the most horrendous warfare that humanity has ever seen, the Battle of Stalingrad and all that. If any of you have never been to war and interested in knowing what war is about, I highly recommend this book. It's just his personal story, and he then he gives some thoughts on it, and he's writing as a soldier who was on the losing side. So he got all the horror of war, plus all the bitterness. I'm not going to read you any of those horror stories right now, but I'm going to read you some of his reactions to peace. But first of all, he talks about this. He says, too many people learn about war with no inconvenience to themselves. They read about Verdun or Stalingrad without comprehension, sitting in a comfortable armchair with their feet beside the fire, preparing to go about their business the next day as usual. One should really read about such accounts under compulsion in discomfort considering oneself fortunate not to be describing the events in a letter home, writing from a hole in the mud. One should read about war in the worst circumstances, when everything is going badly, remembering that the torments of peace are trivial and not worth any white hairs. Nothing is really serious in the tranquility of peace. Only an idiot could be really disturbed by a question of salary. One should read about war standing up late at night when one is tired as I am writing about it now at dawn while my asthma attack wears off and even now in my sleepless exhaustion how gentle and easy peace seems. Now there is someone who every moment of peace appreciates it as a positive, palatable value in life. You see the difference here? So even when we have this kind of peace, this physical state of affairs sort of peace, which will not last, we don't even appreciate that when we have it. Mysterious culture simply ignores a joy like that. We don't find any value in that kind of joy. Because it isn't related to specific things. It isn't giving us a thrill, per se. It isn't something that we can grab onto and own and say is ours. We just completely overlook it in this culture. Lakan Sutra says, The world is seen by discrimination is like seeing one's own image reflected in a mirror or one's shadow or the moon reflected in water or an echo heard in the valley. These are all things you can't get a hold of. You can't grasp the moon in the water. You can't hold the echo in the valley. They're all ephemeral. They're all arising and passing. People grasping their own shadows of discrimination become attached to this thing and that thing, and failing to abandon dualism, they go on forever discriminating, and thus never attain tranquility, peace. Is this constant searching beyond the moment of what is present this restlessness, grasping these things that we think are substantial, which are insubstantial. We're getting here a clue of what causes our inner agitation, what disturbs our inner peace. And there's one thing more we have to face about materialist view of peace. Even if all our biological needs were satisfied by physical goodies, They would not suffice to satisfy our souls. And here's another quote from Guy Sager. And notice, this is what I meant by the ambiguity of his attitude towards peace, outer peace. Peace has brought me many pleasures, but nothing as powerful as that passion for survival in wartime, that faith in love, and that sense of absolutes. It often strikes me with horror that peace is really extremely monotonous. This is a man, by the way, who's not a mystic or anything like that, but who's not afraid to look reality in the face, who has no delusions. They've all been stripped away by his life. Truly speaking, when we do get this physical kind of peace, we are not satisfied with it. We are bored. Truly speaking, one of the reasons people go to war is because it's exciting. Because something vital seems to be at stake. Because it has to do, as he says, with absolutes, the absolutes of life and death. Because it has to do with love. Could be love of country, could be love of comrades. And by the way, in war, there's no stronger bond that develops than between comrades in war. There's an aspect of war that we like, that we enjoy. It has nothing to do with physical conditions. In fact, the physical conditions are horrendous, the worst possible physical conditions. But something in it calls to us at a higher level, calls to something else inside us. The fight for flag, the fight for the fatherland, the motherland, the country. This is very important. It's a call to a greater adventure. The pure materialist view of happiness and peace never takes into account, except, of course, when people want (laughs) profits from war. You notice, it's very interesting, during the Gulf War, Bush started out by saying, well, we have a national interest at stake. We get our oil from the Gulf. Now, this is something all Americans understand rationally. You all drive cars. You know this. That didn't stir anybody. But when he started talking about Saddam Hussein as, as like a new Hitler and we will not let this aggression stand, oh, then people started to get excited. Common people, ordinary people like us, don't go off to war f- to fight for profits or for economic markets or something like that. That's why politicians always trot out some higher ideal. That's what we respond to. Falsely, of course, because even the fatherland and the motherland and the flag are not forever. But it does, it does give us a clue about something. Our desires are self-generated and that restlessness, that lack of inner peace comes from inside. Whenever we get a kind of outer peace, then we get bored. We start to get restless. Boredom is one of the strongest manifestations of suffering. As long as we have that, no matter what great physical conditions you live in. You might have a wonderful suburban home and pool and uh, yard and whatnot. You are still going to be called to something else. And if you think it's, uh, it has something to do with something physical, like even the fatherland, the motherland, you will go off to war. One of the most interesting things about our society today and what shocks people is that juvenile crime is on the rise, but even kids from so-called good homes and suburbs go out and commit crimes. because they're bored. We cannot be satisfied purely by physical goods, physical things. So, this peace that passes all understanding passes all understanding in the sense that it isn't a peace that comes from what rationally we think peace consists of. Where can it be found? Galali Shwari, a Hindu mystic, writes, The play of this world is a prolonged dream, and a dream the waking state does not exist. And when one is awake, the dream is no longer real. Beyond both these, beyond both these lies the supreme state, in that state, there is nothing but supreme peace. Oh, Lali, it is within your own heart. Go and live there. There you will attain peace. She tells you right directly where you can find this peace that passes all understanding. Where the true call to the great adventure is. It's not out there someplace. It's not following armies off to the horizon or banners or flags. The great secret is within. The place we never get to because when we, we look within, we find restlessness and boredom and da da da, da is churning. We never go deeper. Chogyam Chankpa, who is a Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist, wrote, We cannot be truly peaceful unless we have the invincible quality of peace within us. A feeble or temporary peacefulness can always be disturbed. If we try to be kind and peaceful in a naive way, encountering a different or unexpected situation might interfere with our awareness of peace because that peace has no strength, no character. What he's talking about is those people who approach life and the problem of peace with good intentions. Oh, if only we could be peaceful. Oh, I'm going to try to be a peaceful person. It's an intellectual kind of peace, really. It's as though you could just sort of resolve like a New Year's resolution that you're going to be peaceful and that would be it. And then people like that are horribly disturbed because they find they can't be peaceful. Their peace is always dissolving. They're always trying to hang on to that peace. And then, just as he says, they encounter some difficult situation. And they come away not only angry at the person, but angry at themselves because their own peace collapsed. Inner peace is not something you just decide you're going to do or have or lead just a peaceful life. And people who do that get burned out very, very quickly. To find this place in the heart, to go and live there, this is the great adventure and the true call. The war will never really satisfy, but will be satisfied if you answer this call. And it requires a true transformation. Inner peace requires an inner transformation. A transformation from selfishness to selflessness. That is a a task, an adventure, a journey, a path that uh, will consume you far more than war will. That requires all the intensity of war. That deals with those absolutes of love, life, and death. And on a path you must confront all those things. A true spiritual path. A true spiritual path is looking reality right in the eye, not being naive, not being utopian, not being wishful and fanciful. It's seeing what is. Tao Te Ching gives us a clue to this. The nameless uncarved block, that's the great Tao, is but freedom from desire. And if I cease to desire and remain still, the empire will be at peace of its own accord. The empire, the, the body, the family, the cosmos. Very interesting here. Two things about this. Freedom from desire. Freedom from desire does not mean desire does not arise. I cannot say this often enough because people always read that and they think, oh, that means this is like this state in this in this picture. So you'll go up to heaven and sexual desire won't arise, anger won't arise, none of these things will arise. You'll just be up there in this golden light again, this sort of steady state of affairs, you know. That is not what this means at all. The key word here is freedom. Don't focus on the word desire. Freedom. Freedom from desire. And if we examine ourselves, we see that it is desire that puts us under compulsion. Desire drives us. Desire causes that restlessness and that inner agitation. There's some key right between this desire arising and then compulsion, and between those, there is freedom. And then it says the empire will be at peace of its own accord. Of its own accord. Peace is not something to be created. You don't create peace. You can visualize peace all you want. You can make all sorts of efforts for peace. Peace cannot be created. This peace, the peace that passes all understanding, is already present. It's already there. It is. It's the nature of consciousness, the nature of the Tao, the nature of God. It doesn't have to be created. It has to be discovered. There's a huge difference, a huge difference. It simply has to be discovered. So, how can we get some idea of what the earth these people are talking about? On our retreat, we used the image of this mirror by way of analogy only, but to study the relationship between phenomena and consciousness. Uh, and we talked about how phenomena are like all the reflections in consciousness <coughs> and the mirror itself is consciousness itself. And we talked about various things like, uh, you can move your hand around and the reflection moves, but the mirror doesn't move. This is an analogy when when mystics talk about God or Brahman or the Tao, doesn't change, and yet all things change. But what is this that this eternal that never changes? Well, it's like that. We talked about it never being affected, affected in the sense that I run my hand over it and the reflection passes over it, but the reflection leaves no scratches in the mirror or grooves in the mirror or anything like that. This is not a Stoic reflection. Is actually a, an expression of tremendous compassion. The mirror doesn't judge any reflection that appears in it. Ugly people look in the mirror, beautiful people look in the mirror, competent people look in the mirror, incompetent people look in the mirror. The mirror doesn't say, well, I won't take your reflection, I'll only take your reflection. The mirror doesn't judge. The mirror has this spacious quality that accepts and embraces all that's reflected in it. We can also think of the mirror as a symbol or a metaphor for this kind of peace. Whatever arises in the mirror, the mirror is at peace. We could put this mirror on a murder scene. And the reflection in the mirror would be awfully violent. But the mirror itself would be at peace we could think of whatever arises these reflections in terms of various kinds of desires, or let's say various kinds of emotions. So let's say we could represent this by red. Anger is red. This will reflect anger. Let's say um, gentleness is yellow. This will reflect gentleness. Uh, let's say we're feeling uh, moody. It's blue. Well, this will reflect blue. This has no re- problem reflecting anything. There's no, no problem of any of these things that arise. What then is the secret? What then is the trick? In Judaism, it said, peace is the greatest of all blessings. The whole Torah exists solely for the sake of peace. The Torah in Judaism is not just the specific laws about, you know, you can't beat your women servants and all that sort of thing, and, and how many camels you can uh, trade for this and that. The Torah is much more like the idea of Dharma in Buddhism. It's not only the law, the social law that people live by, but it has the whole continuation of the law of the universe, the cosmos, the true Torah, the great Torah. That's all the practices and all the attitudes and all the prayers and everything you do in order to rediscover this peace, which is another way of saying enlightenment, really. The whole Torah exists solely for the sake of peace, for the discovery of this mirror beneath and behind all this phenomena. So we can say all disciplines and all practices of all spiritual paths, of all traditions, aim at this. Just making this discovery that Lalishwari made. So we obviously can't discuss all the practices and all the disciplines and how they all relate to this, but maybe we can try one very specific little practice. Try one little meditation here and through that see if we can't discover just a little something about what all this is about. And if you can discover a little something in meditation, then you can start to apply it to other aspects of your life. And truly speaking, all the practices and disciplines are a little bit like um, the that uh, necklace of jewels of Indra, where each reflects all the others. If you discover the secret of one practice, you've really got the secret of all the practices. So let's try now a little meditation. So I'll ask you to get a pillow or get to a suitable position. Now let's take an instruction from uh, Buddhism. The goal of tranquilization, again, of peace, same thing pops up in every tradition, is to be reached not by suppressing all mind activity. Very important. It is not to be reached by suppressing all mind activity. It has nothing to do with what's going on in a phenomenal state of affairs. If all mind activity ceases on its own, great. That'll last for a little while, and then it'll all start up. If you think that's peace, you're caught on a spiritual plane, the exact same bond you're caught in if you're chasing after the goods of the earth. But by getting rid of discrimination and attachments. Now, what does it mean by discrimination and attachments here? Discrimination, we might say, is this judgment that one kind of mental activity is better than another mental activity that's the discrimination that's being talked about here, and then the attachment that wants one kind rather than another. We can put it more simply, anything that arises in your mind here, and we're going to concentrate on thoughts, emotions, moods, whatever. Anything that arises, whether they are pleasant or unpleasant, whether they are angry, Whether they are sad, whether they are gentle, whether they are loving, whether they are uh, resentful, whatever, is just to be left alone. An emotion arises that says, I'm restless, I'm bored, I wish I wasn't doing this. Fine, there's nothing wrong with that. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Don't judge that, oh... I shouldn't be feeling this boredom and restlessness. I should be peacefully meditating here. That's a false peace. The true peace is to allow that boredom and restlessness to arise and leave it alone. Do not grasp it. Let it arise. Let it stay for as long as it wants. Be like this mirror that reflects everything that arises in it. Don't judge it. Don't grasp onto it and don't push it away. Let's try this and see what happens. We'll meditate for about 15 minutes here to get into a comfortable position. If you have an object of meditation, start with your object of meditation. Just concentrate perhaps on your breath. If you've never meditated before, just watch your breath for a while, let everything just sort of settle down for a minute, but then drop that even. Don't worry about doing anything. Just watch whatever happens. I'll ring the gong once here to indicate we're starting, and twice to indicate it's over. If you would like to follow our format, turn off your player and meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. Then turn the player back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. So what did you discover? Well, since I didn't go back to my breath as much as I normally would, I kind of entertained myself. What was there? Music and dance. Just like thoughts, just kind of almost all enjoyable, too. Was it peaceful? Mm Mm-hmm. Anything wrong with it? <laughs> Who else? Yeah. I think I more quickly, by starting out with the idea that just anything was fine and not to judge, I think I more quickly got into a, a little deeper state than I ordinary do. And it was very peaceful. It was this little vignettes of, I don't know what, one following the other, just going by, floating. Sort of like reflections in a mirror. Without any purpose or little bits of story. Without any effort. Did you say that? Yeah, I saw that it was a gift that um, there's certain points where I felt this peace, and then I thought, how can I hang on to this? And it, it was just this continuous gift This is the whole point It is a gift It's a gift in the sense it's there It was there before you in a bodily form ever arrived on the scene and it will be there long after you've all dissolved from the scene it just is there by grace. It's My gone. mind normally loves to plan and it and so I was watching it plan and then it did other things and it it just was very peaceful and then I watched thoughts coming up from and was this presence or is it not or whatever and I just let them go and come back and it was peaceful. Did anybody have thoughts themselves that weren't peaceful or emotions or feelings that weren't particularly peaceful? seems like I was searching, kind of in despair, or, you know, that, that somehow that searching kind of destroyed the people. There was moments where there was kind of freedom where I could see something pass by, but a lot of it was kind of a just underlying tone of searching that was somewhat in despair. And then you saw something very valuable. Remember what Dr. Wolf said. There is nothing to attain, and therefore give up the search. Now, I must say that you cannot make that like a New Year's resolution either. So in a certain sense, you have to really deeply see that, that there is nothing to attain. Then the search itself is released. You don't release it, you know what I mean? But you begin to get an idea of where the direction lies. I noticed some verges like to dance around the room, or suddenly make some sounds. And I wondered, is that going to happen? Am I going to find my body moving around the room? Oh, how did that make you feel? A little bit afraid, but not intensely. No, but that's a good clue. Because one of our greatest obstacles is this fear of losing control.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you
0: know what I mean? And we spend all our lives with this subtle effort at controlling, which we don't even recognize until we start to really let go. And then it manifests just as you experienced it, you know. And that is like when you play that game hot and cool, you know, you're getting warm, you're getting warm. Take that as a sign I'm getting warm. Mm-hmm. And actually uh, quite a number of practices, uh, particularly like shamanic traditions, you go off someplace in the wilds so that you can go crazy, you know what I mean? And, and this is part of what shamanic initiation is about. People often go crazy in relation to how the community views them. They start eating bark off the trees and this and that. And if you've been spending all your life hanging on to that control, it's not a bad practice to go off by yourself some weekend in some place where you can do that. But that sense that, uh uh-oh, what's my body going to do, that is the beginning of selflessness. That is the beginning of saying, hey, this body does what it does. One of my favorite lines from that movie Zorba the Greek, you know, the... Uh, the Englishman asks Zorbo, uh, what sort of work does he do? And Zorba says, I got hands, I got feet, I got a head. They do the work, who am I to choose? <laughs> this is this attitude of detachment, of whatever arises, you put your hands to. It's not a question of what you desire in the sense of grasping on to what's going to make you happy or whatever. Zorba's happiness doesn't depend on whether he's a miner or whether he's a cook or, you know, Let me read you a little something by Aya Kema. This is from her book one, The Iron Eagle Flies. I even gave a Sunday talk on this. This doorway leading out of our pre-programmed round of birth and death is accessible to us when insight arises to the degree where we no longer reject and resist, when we have understood and experienced that things are as they are namely a constant flow and nothing more. We need only to be aware of this perpetual movement, to watch it, to know it, but not to put ourselves in the middle of it by wanting that which is pleasant or getting rid of that which is unpleasant. In other words, equanimity, even-mindedness, or peace. Then she goes on to say, When we are still the victim of our pleasant and unpleasant feelings, wanting the one and rejecting the other, we are not masters of our own lives. When we learn to let go of unpleasant feelings, paying no attention to them, accepting them as just feelings, we become masters of the situation that moment. It's very, very crucial to make this distinction. Peace does not mean that unpleasant feelings won't arise. Peace does not mean that agitated emotions won't arise. Peace does not mean that anger won't arise. The secret is just in that gap. When it arises, what happens then? And in that gap, you will see that peace that passes all understanding, that is behind all those things. And in fact, that if it did not exist, none of this could arise. And then to not be identified with the emotion, the feeling, but to be identified with that space that's behind it, gives you that freedom and that spontaneity. And that doesn't mean your body will always just get up and dance just because it feels like it. It means that the choice of what happens next is not driven by that emotion. It's not an attempt to escape that emotion. Or if a pleasant feeling arises, it's not an attempt to hang on to that feeling. Action no longer is driven by this compulsion to get away from feeling or to hang on to feeling. Then what determines action? The whole total situation. May be appropriate to yell at somebody. Maybe skillful means at that particular moment. Maybe not. You're under no compulsion either to or not to. If you yell at somebody and you realize that wasn't very skillful, you're under no compulsion to continue that as an argument and to fall into that old, as she calls it, pre programmed conditioning. You can change course right in the middle. It's not working. Give a big belly laugh. That's the freedom and spontaneity that the Buddha was talking about. And that comes out of this peace. The whole path isn't about attaining this peace. It's about discovering it. And then out of that peace, all actions arise. All feelings arise. All thoughts arise. All phenomena arise as life unfolds from this peace that passes all understanding. That's what mystics mean by peace. Lali Shori sums it up very well. When the sun of knowledge rose and the dew of ignorance disappeared, when I realized my oneness with the name of God, my I-ness was obliterated, and Lali found peace. Okay, now we will bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You are welcome to stay around and have tea and check out the library as usual. And I hope you enjoy this very peaceful, beautiful day.